0: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Grammy-winning country star Kathy Matea comes to the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia on Friday night. I spoke with her about her biggest hits from 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses to the tear-jerking Where Have You Been? Hey, uh, Miss Matea, thanks so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, really glad to be with you this morning.
0: Now you're coming to the Birchmere on August 20th. Um, I know this show has been scheduled like three or four times by now because it's been a crazy year, but are you excited that this thing is finally happening?
1: Yes, this will be my first official. We've, we've done, I've done a couple of little things here and there, but this will be my first official show show um, since the pandemic. I, I did one outdoor show at, in a tent in a parking lot here in Nashville, but uh, this is like the beginning of like, quote unquote, going back on tour.
0: So this will be your first uh, indoor, back to a normal, like at a venue show.
1: Yes, yeah, and I'm really excited. I mean, you know, obviously, it's just, it's just. I mean, there's a part of me that can't believe it.
0: (laughs) For sure, it's been long overdue. Um, Well, whenever I have someone of your stature on uh, on the radio and this podcast, I'll put it on too. I, I always want to know, you know, how you got started. So I know you grew up in West Virginia, but how did you first get into music? You know, like what music did you or your folks listen to growing up? Or when did you, when did you start actually saying, I'm going to pursue this thing?
1: Um, my mom listened to top 40 radio all day <laughs> and loved music, but could not carry a tune. <laughs> my dad had a beautiful voice, loved music, but when he, they both, both my parents grew up in uh coal. cold. Uh, towns, and there was no money for music lessons. So um, I came along, and I was the surprise kid nine years after they thought they were done, and I came out tap dancing, basically, and when I, I wound up skipping the first grade, and when they were testing me at the Board of Education, my mom was like what do i do with her you know now they just give me a big dose of ritalin and be done with it but back then they didn't do that so um they just said to her don't let her get bored or she'll just get lazy and she'll just cruise her way through school and she'll never really do anything she'll never really try and so my mom took them seriously and put me in all these activities, you know, Girl Scouts and, and piano lessons and horseback riding and ice skating. And the only things that really stuck had to do with music. So I started taking piano when I was six. And, and then I went away. This is what actually, this is, I tell people music saved my life. Um, I went away to Girl Scout camp when I was 10. And I discovered that I had skipped a grade in school. So I was kind of a misfit you know I didn't have that extra year of acclimating and getting used to my friends and stuff and so I couldn't socially I was kind of immature and intellectually I was ahead of everybody else so when I discovered at camp that if you had a guitar everybody gathered around and you didn't have to really know anything you didn't have to have any you know I didn't know how to fit in and all of a sudden music did that for me and i became obsessed with it and so i just always i tell people music saved my life it just saved it saved me and so i i started playing music in all my spare time and i was a physics and chemistry major in college at west virginia university and found a bunch of people that loved music as much as me and we started playing in all our spare time and writing songs and we made it formed a band and there was this moment where I realized I felt different when I was playing music than when I was doing math and science. And I thought, what if I built my life around that? What would happen? And uh, that's kind of, that's the short version of the story.
0: No, I love it. And all this, I love, um, you know, you're growing up in you know it's you said it was coal miner country uh, I guess what Loretta Lynn's coal miners daughter came out when you're probably what like 12 13 something like that so was that a big influence on you
1: um actually I, I didn't really listen to country music when I was a kid I, I was I listened to anything I could find but my mom like I said kept the radio on top 40 and my brother my older next older brother was kind of into rock and roll. And so, I, I mean, I, I didn't have my own music. I just listened to whatever was around. I didn't get into country music. Um, in high school, a friend of mine's dad had a bluegrass band. And I would sometimes, he would teach me songs and I would, i would, you know, you bluegrass is so democratic. Anybody who can play three chords can sit in. So I would learn songs from him. And then I got into college. And that's when um, a lot of my friends were we're getting into country and bluegrass through the Will the Circle be Unbroken album and some of the other kind of hipster country influenced bands like Ozark Mountain Daredevils and John Hartford and people who sort of did an edgier version of the traditional sound. And that was my doorway into country music.
0: Love it, and you, you were mentioning that you know you were in college and you're you're getting all this exposure to the, all the country and you know playing bands and you're thinking I'm I'm enjoying the music more than math and science and and studying. You drop out, right? And so you decide to the courage, uh, the bravery to move to Nashville. Um, and is it true you worked as like a tour guide at the Country mm-hmm. Ho- Music Hall of Fame, like in those early years? Like, I want to know those early years in Nashville before you got that that you know your big break for your, your self titled debut in '84.
1: Um, yes, I, that was my first job, and what the way it unfolded was that uh, what one of the guys in the band I was in that we had been writing a lot of music together, he was graduating and he said, I'm gonna go to Nashville. I'm just gonna go. And one day he looked at me and he said, You know, you you're welcome to come with me if you want. And I thought, oh my God, if he goes down there and has this great life and I am stuck up here in school, I'm 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 not gonna be able to live with myself. I'm not gonna be able to live with that. And so I just kind of, I realized one day that I was a year younger than everybody else in my class. So I had a year to play with and I could go and have an adventure and come back and be the same age as everybody else in my, at my level in school. So I called my parents and excitedly told them I'd made this decision. And it, you know, they were just college for them was a, was something that that was um, not readily available to everybody. And so for them, it was very important for me to do this. And I knew that if I didn't go with my friend, I would never go alone. It was just too scary. So I I made the leap and I was too young to wait tables in Tennessee because you had to be 21 to serve alcohol at the time. And I was 19 when I moved, I had just turned 19. So I got a job as a tour guide at the Hall of Fame because we knew somebody, we had the name of somebody from West Virginia who worked there at the front desk. And it was a great job. I mean, I got a chance to learn the history of country music and just start getting, I mean, I, I would go play Jimmy Rogers films on my, on my lunch break. I would go down into the library and listen to interviews. I mean, it was just, it was a wonderful thing. Um, And I, after about 10 months, my friend Mick decided he was going to go back to school and he was not going to do this. And so I had to decide whether I was going to stay in Nashville by myself or go home. And that was a pivotal moment for me in my life. And I just decided that, you know, I had kind of let him run the show because it was his idea. And I'd kind of just floated along on his coattails. And I decided, I I took a month to make the decision about whether to stay or go home. And I finally decided that I I could do it for a year. I could go home after a year if I really, really applied myself. And so I just buckled down and ate, breathed and slept music just for a solid year. I did nothing but practice and make contacts and I found a teacher and I started studying voice so that I'd know my instrument better and it was it was a life-changing year for sure
0: wow isn't that funny it was your friend it was his idea to go there in the first place and then he leaves and heads back first and you stay there and what was supposed to be you know like um Mid college gap year turns into a whole career for you, but that's because you. I love that that you were in the library watching Jimmy Rogers films, and you know you're putting <laughs> in your what is it your ten thousand hours or whatever, just doing doing that. So so all that hard work, you're 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 learning the craft, you're learning the history of it, you're making your contacts. How did that big break uh, for that your your debut album in eighty four? How did that actually come about with uh, Mercury?
1: There were a couple of things that happened that were pivotal. Um, I had decided that I, I, I wasn't going to, uh, I was just looking to, I was just, I always tell young people, just keep turning over rocks. You just don't know, you know, you don't know where your break's going to come from. And what wound up happening for me was um, I walked into a publishing company with a friend. A friend of mine was a journalist and he was writing an article and he was co-writing it with this guy who worked at this publishing company. And so we go, we're going to go hear music or something. And we stopped by on the way out, on the way uh, to dinner that night. And, um, and so we, we walk into the publishing company and we, we, I know that this company is not, they're closed. You know, they've kind of got their family of people. And I've been like pe- told by people don't even go in there. They're not really open to writers and singers from outside. So we walk in and my friend is talking to this guy and he just casually says, "You know, Kathy's a really good singer if you're ever looking for a female demo singer." And I I immediately thought, "Here it comes, here comes the rejection. You know, we've got our people and we're not looking." But to my surprise, the guy looks up and says, well, you know, it's funny. We are kind of looking for a female demo singer. Our female singer just moved to California. So we've been kind of looking for somebody. And he said, you know, you might want to just drop a, a tape by next week. And I said, I just happen to have one here in my purse. Because <laughs> I <laughs> had one all the time. It was one of the unspoken rules. And I left it with him. And then next, he said, you have to be able to sing lots of different styles and you have to be fast. And I very quietly said, I can do that because I had been working very hard on that very thing. Sure. And so the next on Monday, this was a Friday afternoon. On Monday, my friend went back to sort of, you know, catch up on the collaboration on the article they were writing. And he said, Did you listen to that tape? He said, No. He said, Well, put it in right now. And the story that came back to me was that after halfway through the first song, He hit the stop button and said, if you know anyone else who sings like this, I want you to send them to me right now. (laughs) And my phone rang that afternoon and it was a guy from this pub. It was that guy from the publishing company. And I started singing demos there the next week and sang there for until, until my records started taking off. I got my record deal because people started hearing my voice circulate around the record companies on these tapes and asking who I was. And it was just a chance meeting. It was just a chance that I happened to walk into the right building at the right time. But I will say that I thought I had my big break two or three times before it really happened. So you just you just have to be tenacious, you know, you just have to kind of keep, tr- keep turning over rocks and keep trying and, and um, you know, until my year was up, I was not gonna leave. I was going to give myself a solid year to uh to you know make it the center of my life and then i would decide and this happened before that year was up
0: i love it keep turning over rocks that's the that's great advice so you have that debut self titled debut album 84 you know and then then you're off to the races from my heart in 85 walk the way the wind blows in 86 and then of course in 1987, Untasted Honey, um, I think, is when you really, really start to blow up. I mean, that's when you had your, you know, your first two number one hits, Going and Gone, and and then one I love, Eighteen Wheels and a Dozen Roses. Memories of, of recording those two um, number one hits. That I mean, that's life changing
1: stuff. Oh, it was it was really something. Um... Yeah, I was working with Alan Reynolds, who's a legendary producer now. He's best known now for producing Garth Brooks, but this was before Garth came along. Who's that?
0: I've never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, and Alan at the time was kind of a, he was a mysterious and legendary guy. He he didn't make the scene. He was just quietly doing great music. He, he produced early Don Williams records. He produced all the Crystal Gale records and lots of other stuff. And he was just, he... a friend called him the guru and uh, I would go spend, before I had a hit, I would just, I lived a block from his studio on Music Row. So I'd just go over in the afternoons and we'd sit and listen to music and talk about records. And um, he just, he looked at me over and over and over again. And he said, Kathy, it's the song. It's the song. He said, if you find a great song and you sing it honestly and you frame it well, it will not exist in any moment in time. It will be timeless. It will live forever. And so he helped me with that. And when we cut, we kept going gone, we cut 18 wheels. I just remember it was really, it was really, he, he took all the mystery out of it. He had this way of just making all of the musicians feel comfortable and loved and like their ideas were important and special. And he just created this big fluffy pillow for all of us to fall into. And he didn't make it like we were trying to, he didn't make it like we were trying too hard. It was just like, you just be honest and you be yourself and the rest will fall into place. And so I got my compass pointed very young by somebody who was really wise and that has served me well over a lifetime.
0: Definitely has. Um, and then, of course, your next album—you had two more number one hits. You're not done yet. Come from the Heart and uh, Burning Old Memories. Why do you think those two uh, songs connect with audiences so well? Why do you think they work so well?
1: Well, Burning Old Memories was just a great record, and Ray Flack played some crazy, wild electric guitar, and it was—it uh, was just it was really spontaneous and fun and, and come from the heart was an interesting song. I found that song. My manager actually found that song and he's, I was listening with Alan to songs one afternoon and he knew we were meeting and, and, you know, music row is like a college campus. So Bob, my manager, his office was just down the street in a house and we were meeting in the studio, which was a house. And he said, he calls up and he says, I got something I want to come over and play you. So he gets in the car and drives over, plays me this song and he says, I want you to hear this song, but you can't have it. It's on hold for somebody else. So he plays me this song and I'm like, you jerk. How can you play me something I would love so much and then tell me I can't have it.
0: That's just cruel.
1: (laughs) Oh, I was was like, I hate you. And, um, And I was so frustrated and then it was Don Williams that had the song on hold, and he. Then I I heard that he let it off hold. He decided he wasn't going to do it. The man I ran in there like a little kid, <laughs> and I was like, I want that song. I want that song. So it was like, okay, you can have it. Then he decided, no, he did want to do that song, and they were like, you know, make up your mind. <laughs> yeah, they were. You know, this is part of how music grow. At least. Traditionally back then, it really ran on the honor system. The first recording of a song you have, you have what they call first license and it gets granted by the publishers. So, you know, there was a lot of the honor system. Like if you said you were gonna do it, they would they would not allow anybody else to record it. So I had to let it go. And so I paid close attention to when Don Williams's next record came out and I read all the reviews I could find as they came out and nobody mentioned this song. So I went and bought the album. This is before you could stream records and stuff. So I went and bought the album and I listened to the song and I was like, they didn't get it. They didn't get a good cut on it. It just didn't didn't sing, you know, it wasn't a great uh, record. And so I quietly put it on my list for my next album. And it was the first thing we cut. And, you know, I mean, I knew what I had. And the interesting thing to me is the whole the song is about letting go and kind of going with the flow. And, it, and I always told people, you know, in order to get that song, I had to do what the song said and let go. And it came back to me
0: that's so not, nice. yeah that's so great that you what is it you love it you let it go and to come back and it works for songs too. come from the heart is that that version for you yeah, exactly. um, and wow i mean so that same album willow in the wind i mean those were your number one hits come from the heart and burn All no memories but, but i think that last track it only reached number 10 but I think "Where Have You Been" is your friggin' masterpiece. At least it's my personal favorite. It won. It won you Grammy, obviously. But talk about how you know it's that classic country music story structure where the you know the title means something different in the first verse and second verse, and then by the third verse, you know we're all in puddles of tears for mm-hmm. <laughs> Edwin and Claire. That's that tear jerker. But talk about why that story structure works uh, in a lot of songs, but particularly here um, with this husband and wife saying "Where Have You Been."
1: <laughs> well. That song, well, first of all, my husband wrote that song. John Resner. Yes. He co-wrote it with our friend Don Henry. And it's a true story about the last thing his grandmother ever said. Oh, my God. I didn't know it was and true. He told me, you know, there's this moment when you're dating and you start to get a little more serious and you start to tell each other the really important stories in your life. And he had told me this story. And when he did, he burst into tears. Well, we were having a a little party for all the people who played and the writers on Going Gone, which was my first number one. And at the end of that party, um, it was just a little party at the studio. Now they put signs out on Music Row and they have these big gatherings and celebrations. But back then it was just a very low key thing. It was like, hey, we did good. So at the end of the, the gathering, John said, hey, I wanna play you guys something just as everybody was kind of dissipating. So we went upstairs to the listening room and he put this in and went and went by. When when the title came by and it, and it was where have you been in the first chorus, I knew what the song was gonna be about. Mm. And I couldn't believe he had written this story into a song. And, you know, it, it was, It was obviously very, I've just felt really vulnerable for him. And Alan was like, this is really good, but it's so sad. I don't know, John, I don't know. So we kind of kept it to the side. And in the meantime, this is what I love about Nashville. Over time, over the course of the next few months, every publisher in Nashville, we started to hear stories that basically every publisher in Nashville had a copy of this song on their desk. And we kept hearing stories about people walking in and saying, you know, I walked into such and such publisher and they said, look, we, I don't have anything to do with this song, but you've got to hear this song. And they, they would, they would play it for the person. And this is one of the things about Nashville is that, that people champion songs. It's like more about, um, the support of, of great artistry underneath any financial gain. And this is part of the, what, what's just beautiful about it. If somebody writes something great, everybody tells everybody about it. So this was going on. And John kept telling me about playing it for people and you know, their, the reaction they would have. And I just kept thinking, this is too, this is too sad, this is too sad. And so we're at the Bluebird Cafe one night, and uh, there's a showcase for songwriters. And my husband is on the bill. And he plays the song as part of his set that night. And I watched the room go crazy. There were audible sobs all over the room. People were losing it. People. In the audience that night, were just losing it, and I thought, "Oh my God! It doesn't matter if this is sad. This song needs to be heard. This song is amazing, and it needs to be heard." And suddenly, I just—I could see it beyond my. Um, I was also kind of protective of him and afraid that if I did it, and it, you know, it was—it was too much for people that it—it it would not be good for either one of us. And I just suddenly had a very clear vision. I was like, this song needs to be heard and I'm going to do it. And I went back to Alan and I just said, we need to do it. We need to do this song. And interestingly enough, as a little side note, there was another songwriter on the bill that night at the Bluebird and it was Garth Brooks. Wow! And he had been turned down by every record company in town. But there was a guy from Capitol Records there that night and his name is Lynn Schultz and he signed him from that show. So it was quite a memorable night at the Bluebird.
0: A pivotal Um, night in country music history for more reasons than one, man. Wow. I mean, it is, it is just, it's a, it's a tear jerking song. (laughs) no joke, And it's so cool that, you know, it was with your husband, the songwriter, John. Um, You know,
1: I have to say we start, I started doing it in my show. I mean, I never thought a song like that would get out on the radio. I started doing it in my show and it, and people didn't know the song and, and I would, I would get a standing ovation in the middle of my show. It would stop the show. And so we had long talks with the record company. We weren't sure about putting it out. And it was the head of the promotion department that was like, we have to do this. We have to put this out. It was, um, usually you're fighting the promotion department, you know, they want something super quote unquote commercial. And these guys were like, this is a special song and it needs to be heard. And we want to put it out. We want to work it at the radio stations. And it was just, you know, it's also a a great lesson for me that yeah, that record didn't go top five, but it's absolutely probably that and 18 wheels are my two biggest records ever my biggest songs and it's just such a picture to me that the number doesn't always really matter you know
0: it's the the only number that matters to me and all other listeners is no joke my wife and I one of our when we back when we first started dating it we bonded, we put on that song and we bonded over the fact that we both just cried (laughs) in front of each other with that song so really that's all that that's the only number that matters it doesn't matter if it's 10 it's if you're speaking to people's hearts
1: you know well, that's the kind of thing that you can't manufacture and you just, you know, if you get lucky, you, you find something that moves people like that. And, um, you know, I just, and John and I got to take quite a ride together because of that song.
0: Absolutely. Well, it just shows that you're gutsy, you know, you're taking on, like you said, people, you know, if it would be too controversial or too sad or whatever, taking on something like Alzheimer's in the last verse, but, but you're gutsy and you go for it. And I know, you know, uh, something similar you know i don't know if you want to call it activism or whatever but like in the 80s with the aids epidemic i remember you were a, a supporter of those red ribbons i remember and like what was it like the cmas only wanted to do green ribbons for environmental because they were a little you know skittish about maybe doing the aids red ribbon thing and you so you took a stance and a stance and wore multiple colors right remind our listeners of that
1: well the um The CMAs had decided to do green ribbons because they wanted to stand for environmental causes. And at the time, um, all of the major award shows and and lots of public um, figures were wearing red ribbons as a quiet way of saying, I support people with AIDS. And because it was very controversial back then, it's hard to remember now, but it was a really um, polarizing disease when it came out. There were lots of, you know, there was just lots and lots of chatter about it. And um, I started to lose friends was what happened. Um, And I, I had, you know, I lost, I don't know, three or four people in my life. And I, and I just walked into my manager and I was just like, you know, I just feel like I need to do something. I need to do something. And so I had been doing Somehow it came out in the newspaper the week before the CMAs that I had been supportive of people with AIDS and somebody in the TV column kind of challenged me. And she said, you know, if let's hope that if I, I was not nominated for anything that year. She said, let's hope if she gets a microphone in her hand, she says something because the country music community, the people watching will not know what the Red ribbon means. So I was publicly challenged to speak and I didn't make a decision until right before I walked out. And I just kind of went off by myself backstage at the Opry house and I I searched my heart. And I was like, well, I think I need to say something. And I didn't want to grandstand And um, actually, I had, we had called the CMA, and said, you know, we're in this position. We don't want to grandstand, but we've been publicly challenged. Do you want to script something? Do you want, you know, to work with us about this? And we got no response. So in that moment, I was sort of on my own. And I just thought, okay, I need to quietly say something. And I tried to make, I've never been able to watch that video back by the way, I've never seen it. Uh, It was just too too emotional for me. But in that moment, the interesting thing, Jason, is that I searched my heart, I did that. And for weeks afterwards, I would be doing different events and people would pull me aside and start telling me stories. Wow. And it started the next morning Uh, with a big, they they do these big junkets where all the big morning shows from around the country for the CMAs come to Nashville, set up a remote in one big room. And then they take the stars through and you get to be on all the morning shows on all the big radio stations. And they get to parade a bunch of people through their, you know, their CMA week coverage. So it works out great for everybody. So I was, I walked in that room and this guy came across the room And he was a big DJ in a major Southern city, very conservative area. And he gets up, walks across the room and he says, you're my hero. I was like, what? And he said, look, and he tells me this story about his childhood best friend who died of AIDS, who came to him and said, look, I'm gay. You never knew it. I have AIDS, get over it. (laughs) And he basically walked him through the last year and a half of his life. And he said, it changed my life forever. And he said, Thank you for speaking up. Um, an older guy at at the Nashville Network pulled me aside and said, Thanks for speaking out. And I was, I looked at him and he said, My son has AIDS. I walked into another radio station. A very well-known DJ, beloved, said, Nobody knows it, but I have AIDS. And I realized there were all of these people who had been touched by AIDS but couldn't talk about it because they didn't know who was cool to talk to and who wasn't? And I thought maybe that's just, maybe that was my contribution, you know, was just sort of opening something up to say, can we just, can we, can we come with compassion first? And then, you know, and, and have compassion for each other's humanity and struggle. And then the rest of it is all secondary. And um, I don't know, I just felt like I got a big lesson from doing that. And it came again from just following my heart, you know, following my gut. Well,
0: I commend you for the courage of doing that at that time. Yeah. Like you said, it's hard to nowadays, you know, things have moved at warp speed on that, on that front of LGBT stuff. But man, it's, if you put yourself back in that, you know, late eighties era, I mean, it was very like taboo to talk about it. So commend you for that. And then of course you mentioned Garth, he comes out with that line and we shall be free a couple of years later. And then, yeah. you know, Hollywood does Philadelphia, Tom Hanks and Denzel Broadway does rent. And now we're, then we're off to the races, but you were, you were really on the early part of that. So, so thank you for, for doing that. Was there, was there any, um, you know, on the flip side, was there any, like, you know, I don't want to say Dixie chick style backlash, but do you know what I mean? Like were there deep South conservative country listeners that, that pushed back on that or, or did you, you know, that positive feedback of people coming up and saying, thank you for Stevie. Did that sort of outweigh that for you?
1: Um. You know, I think I was blissfully ignorant of the negative feedback. And I think also that in those days, you know, because there was no social media back then. So there was no sort of anonymous, judgy backlash. There was no place for that voice. So I think whatever negative negative backlash I got um, was sort of under the radar for me. And what I came to understand, I mean, I, I, I came to understand later on that it wasn't without consequences, but what I felt, the relief that I felt from people who kept pulling me aside, overrode any negative feedback I got. Oh, hands down. And I, and I thought it was a lesson for me. It was like, oh, I, you know, I, I lost something in that process but I gained something in that process. And at the end of the day, it was worth it to me.
0: I think you gained so much more of, than, than anything small you might've lost. I think you gained so much more uh, by put, going out there on that, that limb. So thank you so much for that. Um, and before we run, I did wanna just um, mention your one of my favorite Christmas songs in 2003 Christmas collage you you sort of weave together o come Emmanuel, we three kings got You Mary gentleman and I believe what child is this I think that's the four um talk about uh, why that was uh, something you decided to take on I mean I think you'll still hear it on you know on the syndicated ra- Christmas radio today it's kind of cool that, how you weave together so many
1: cool hymns well, my longtime guitar player, uh, his name is Bill Cooley, and he was with me 30 years. He quit at the very beginning of COVID. He said, I think it's time for me to go off the road and I want to give you enough notice. And this seems like the best, a good time to make that break. And he, he is like music is his window into a- connection with people. Like he's just an amazing, well-read, very smart mind you know very sharp mind but music is where the soulfulness of his life comes and especially at Christmas he has a big family and they do hymn singing and and so I had made this album good news which was a Christmas album but it was all new songs it was songs that that people weren't familiar with and when we went it wound up winning a Grammy And when we took it on the road, Bill came to me and he said, Kathy, these songs are so much fun to play, but we cannot do a Christmas show and not do something that people are familiar with. I mean, really, they need that at Christmas. So he had the seed of the idea for it. And we sat together and worked worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and got together for rehearsals with the band and, and, and kept tweaking it. And we really came up with this arrangement together, but it came from a seed that he had and we started doing it and it was just went over really well. And, um, I wound up recording it and it came out on a compilation album. And the interesting story about that is that we had a great recording of it. We felt great about it and we were going to send it to the company in LA that was putting out this big Christmas compilation. And they had a deadline and the deadline was September 12th, not 2001. So we were gonna FedEx the final mix on a tape to them. And 9-11 happened. Oh
0: my gosh.
1: And they took every plane out of the sky. And my husband, God bless him, was working with the engineer and they found a way to up, back then it was not that easy to do. They found a way to upload the high resolution uh, mix tape, tape for lack of a better word, the digital recording of this song to a website that was secure and the people in LA downloaded it And it made it just under the wire for that recording. Wow!
0: Was it the now? That's what I call
1: Christmas compilation. You're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Because
0: you're on there. I mean, you're one of the few newer artists on there. I mean, it's like Nat King Cole, Bing Crosby, Elvis, Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Ella Fitzgerald. Like you, they. That shows the power of that song. That they plucked that on there to put a newer artist like yourself on with those legendary, you know, crooners.
1: Yeah, I was. I felt very lucky to be part of that, and. Um, and so, you know, at the time we were, we didn't know if we were going to make it under the deadline or not, and they were not holding the deadline for me. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Um, so I feel really fortunate because, you know, at the time I'd had this Christmas record that had done really well and, and won a Grammy. And, uh, so I was, I was doing a lot of touring every Christmas and getting to play these songs and, um, so it made a lot of sense for us to do this. And, and it also felt like we had worked really hard on this song and, uh, and on the arrangement. And I wanted people to hear it, you know. So I just feel again, you know, I'm just really, really lucky.
0: Well, we've really lucky to follow your whole career and to and for you to be so generous with your time. I, we've got we've gone about forty minutes. <laughs> I'm gonna cut cut you loose, but thank you so much for sharing all of the, you know, all of the stories behind your hits and you know your your stance on the the whole AIDS thing and now with the Christmas album. We covered just about everything. So thanks so much for joining us again, everybody. Kathy Matea, an evening with Kathy Matea at the Birchmere on August twentieth. Thank you so much. This was a great combo.
1: My my pleasure, Jason. Thanks.